This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, President Biden is battling a COVID infection as the world prepares for another health crisis. Nearly two and a half years into the COVID pandemic, President Biden is experiencing what millions of Americans have gone through, a bout of what may be the latest mutation of COVID. I'm doing well, getting a lot of work done. But the country is facing another health crisis as the rapid spread of monkeypox prompts the World Health Organization to declare a global emergency. This is an outbreak that can be stopped with the right strategies. We'll discuss the strategy for containing monkeypox, the evolving threat of COVID, and the president's own prognosis with White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, Dr. Ashish Jha. Meanwhile, a dangerous heat wave rolls through the U.S., bringing with it intensifying drought and raging wildfires. We'll hear from the mayor of Miami, Republican Francis Suarez, about how his frontline city is preparing for rising sea levels and extreme weather. And with the president's environmental agenda stalled in Congress, we'll ask Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo about what's next for climate and competition with China. Then the committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol reveals new details about former President Trump's conduct during and after the assault. I don't want to say the elections are right. Will the revelations have any legal or political impact on Mr. Trump's future? If I announced that I was not going to run for office, the persecution of Donald Trump would immediately stop. We'll check in with California Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, a member of the select committee. And just hours after a U.N. brokered deal was signed to release vital Ukrainian grain exports, Russia bombs the very ports where they're stored. As the war continues to roil the global economy, we'll talk with Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S., Oksana Makarova. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We have a lot of news to get through this morning, but we want to begin on the medical beat with the latest on President Biden's condition and the fight to contain both COVID and monkeypox. We're joined now by White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, Dr. Ashish Jha. Welcome to Face the Nation. Good morning, Margaret. Thanks for having me here. Well, the White House physician has said that it's the BA5 variant that likely infected the president. Uh, That's the dominant variant across the country right now. It's highly transmissible. How is the president's health and do you know where he got it? Yeah, so it is the BA5 variant, uh, which is, as you said, is about 80 percent of infections. The president's doing well. I checked in with his team late last night. Uh, He was feeling well. He had a good day yesterday. Uh, he's got a viral syndrome, an upper respiratory infection uh, that is, and he's doing just fine. There is so little known about long COVID, but given the president's uh, age, um, do you expect that the White House will continue to make disclosures if he has long-term symptoms from this infection? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we think it's really important for the American people to know how well their president's doing, which is why we have been so transparent, uh, giving updates several times a day, uh, having uh, people hear from me directly, hear uh, directly from his physician. Um, And obviously, if he has persistent symptoms, obviously, if any of them interfere with his ability to carry out his duties, uh, we will we will disclose that early and often with the American people. About six out of 10 Americans, according to the CDC, live in areas of high transmission right now. That includes major cities like New York, Phoenix, Miami. There are no indoor mask mandates there. Does that concern you? In areas of high transmission, 
Uh, I think it's very prudent for people to be wearing masks indoors, especially if they're in crowded, poorly ventilated spaces. That's what the CDC recommends. I also want to ask you about this other health challenge with monkeypox. The World Health Organization yesterday declared it a public health emergency of international concern. That's the highest level of alert. The Biden administration, specifically HHS, has stopped short of doing that. Should you declare it a pandemic? Should you declare it a public health emergency? We are seeing uh, outbreaks that are out of control in many, many parts of the world. And it's very important uh, that we get our arms around this thing. But here it is an emergency States, here. Well, in the, in the U.S. right now, we're looking at public health emergency as, a, uh, as something that HHS might uh, deliver, but I mean, might uh, invoke. But, you know, it really depends on what does that allow us to do. Right now, we have over 2,000 cases, but we have ramped up vaccinations, ramped up treatments, ramped up testing. And we're going to continue to look at all sort of policy options. You said back in May that you think we can get our arms around this. You said monkeypox is a virus that we understand. Are you saying today, just like then, you think monkeypox can be contained? I do think monkeypox can be contained. Absolutely. Um, the way we contain monkeypox is we have a very simple, straightforward strategy on this, right, which is uh, make testing widely available. We have done that. And now testing is far more frequent and common. It was uh, slow. Get vaccines out. Yeah, but we have right now the capacity to do 90,000 tests a week. I'm sorry, 80,000 tests a week. That's an extraordinary number. We're going to be releasing hundreds of thousands of more vaccines in the next uh, days and weeks. So there is a very substantial ramping up of response that is happening right now. But I ask you about containment because um, you could have shifted allocation earlier, surged it differently. Um, sooner switching from at-risk individuals to areas where there are active high case counts and an outbreak. The CDC director said just a few days ago her agency has no data on who has been vaccinated. She said there's one key important similarity with COVID and with monkeypox, and that is the CDC's inability to see data in real time. So this seems to be still an issue for our health agencies to act quickly to contain an outbreak. This is a problem. Yeah, so what I would I'd remind us is that public health in America has always been led by states. It is important for states to be sharing data with CDC. We've been uh, working with states across the country. Lots of states have been forthcoming. And, and, and my expectation is that in the days and weeks ahead, we're going to be able to get more and more data from states. And that will help us understand the national picture a bit more uh, in, in a bit more detail. But we do have a pretty good feel right now for how... Uh, widespread monkeypox is, as I said, about 2,000 or so cases across the country. A fellow Democrat, Congressman Adam Schiff, who will be on this program today, sent a letter to HHS saying the federal government is falling short of the response that is needed. Skyrocketing cases, limited vaccination supply worldwide suggests that the monkeypox virus will continue to spread for years to come, if not indefinitely. Is monkeypox now endemic? Will it continue to spread indefinitely? Well, it is endemic in certain parts of the world. It is not endemic I'm asking here in the about United here. States. And the plan here is very straightforward. We, the plan is to eliminate this virus from the United States. Uh, I think we can do that. We've got the vaccines and we've got the diagnostic tests. There are now two children with it that the CDC knows of, at least. And the CDC said both of these children are traced back to individuals who come from the men who have sex with men community. How actively is this being spread? And are you still only talking about the gay community uh, because you're only looking there? Yeah, so we obviously know that this virus is spreading largely in the, in the gay community uh, among men who have sex with men. Um, but obviously, uh, there are other people who are at risk as well, people they interact with, people, anybody who has monkeypox can spread it to others. Uh, it is through skin-to-skin -skin contact, uh, direct and prolonged contact. We're doing a very broad surveillance. This is why not only have we ramped up testing capacity, we're, we're uh, encouraging physicians, working with physician groups to do more broad-scale testing. I want to ask you about one other issue right now. We heard in the state of New York, the first case of polio in nearly a decade was confirmed in an unvaccinated 20-year-old man in Rockland County, New York. He was hospitalized back in June. Are there other cases? And if he was infected back in June, why are we only now hearing about it? Yeah, so this is a place where the CDC is working very closely with the Department of Health. Uh, it is in an unvaccinated individual. Thankfully, most Americans are vaccinated against polio. Most of the world is vaccinated against polio. 
uh, if obviously if you're not vaccinated against polio, critically important. Right. Well, I have a small child. He, you, it takes time to get fully vaccinated. Should I be concerned that there are polio cases spreading in New York and in the United States? You know, there's a lot of surveillance that we do for polio. There's wastewater surveillance that goes on. We are not seeing outbreaks of polio elsewhere. Uh, but I do not expect polio to become more widespread in the country, again, because so many Americans are vaccinated against this. Dr. Jha, thank you for your time this morning. Face the Nation will be back in a moment. Stay with us. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Say goodbye to performance-robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower-grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell. We now turn to the January 6th investigation and the latest findings from the House Select Committee investigating the attack on the Capitol. On Thursday, the committee detailed hours of inaction by President Trump during the assault as he sat in his dining room, watched the violence unfold on television and chose to do nothing to stop the siege of Congress, despite pleas by advisors, Republican lawmakers and allies. Yeah, the commander in chief, you got an assault going on on the capital of the United States of America. And there's nothing. No call, nothing, zero. We learned that Secret Service agents protecting Vice President Mike Pence feared for their lives. There were calls to um, say goodbye to family members, so on and so forth. And the VP detail thought that this was about to get very ugly. And we saw, for the first time, top congressional leaders working with the acting Secretary of Defense to get back to certifying the electoral votes. The earliest we could safely resume. Uh, I, here's my assessment. I would say that case, uh, we're looking at four to five hours. The hearings to date have featured a wide range of witnesses, but the through line of nearly all the testimony has been former President Trump and his relentless efforts to overturn his loss in the 2020 election. Committee members say the investigation is far from over, with more hearings planned for September. Joining us now is a member of that panel, Congressman Adam Schiff of California, who is also the chair of the House Intelligence Committee. Good to have you here with us. Thank you. Uh, before I go further on January 6th, I do want to quickly just button up what Dr. Ja addressed in regard to that letter you wrote this week in regard to monkeypox. You said the federal response falls short in terms of supply and timeliness regarding a vaccine. The current supply accounts for only three and a half million residents. Some shipments are not even expected to arrive until 2023. Why do you think the federal response is failing when Dr. Ja says it's contained and under control? I don't know why uh, there aren't more vaccines available. I'm hearing from healthcare providers in my district that there are people lining up to get vaccinated and they don't have the vaccines for them. And that is a real problem. Uh, as I think you indicated, we really don't know the future course of this virus. Uh, but what we do now early on, uh, just as uh, was the case with the pandemic, will determine just how bad this may get. Uh, and so I want to light a fire under the administration and get them to make sure that we up production, that we up distribution, uh, and that people that are ready and willing and able to get vaccinated have the ability to protect themselves. 
We'll continue tracking that on this program, but let me get back to January 6th. Um, when you were last on this program, you said you believed that it would be more dangerous for the Justice Department to decide against prosecuting the former president than it would be to go ahead with a prosecution. Here's how Attorney General Merrick Garland responded when my colleague Jeff Pegues asked him about potential prosecution. Look, no person is above the law in this country. Nothing stops us. No, per I don't know how to maybe I'll say that again. No person is above the law in this country. What do you make of those remarks? Well, uh, the attorney general was committed to following the evidence wherever it may lead, and it has led to Donald Trump. Uh, and so I think the president should be investigated. Whether they'll ultimately conclude they have proof beyond a reasonable doubt uh, to to charge him and to convict him, that's that will be up to the department. Uh, but what we have demonstrated just in the last couple of hearings is that when all else failed, when all these other lines of effort to overturn the election failed, he made the decision to bring a mob to the Capitol. When he learned they were armed, uh, his response was, then take the magnetometers down. Uh, he wanted to march with that mob, that uh, armed and dangerous mob to the Capitol. And when he was refused and brought to the safety of the cafeteria or the dining room of the White House, mm -hmm. he wouldn't lift a finger uh, as he watched on TV police officers being beaten and gouged and sprayed with chemicals uh, in, you know, the most supreme dereliction of duty ever. But also uh, those multiple lines of effort, I think, uh, invoke various criminal laws uh, and his conduct ought to be the subject of investigation. Well, we'll see if the Justice Department starts one um, on the things that the committee has laid out in this congressional forum. Um, we still haven't seen a direct link substantiated between uh, the White House officials and the militias like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers who were part of the violence that day. Are you still trying to substantiate that? Uh, that remains an ongoing part of our investigation. We've certainly shown some links between the president, key advisors uh, like Roger Stone and Mike Flynn uh, and elements of these white nationalist groups. Uh, but that component of our investigation continues, uh, and as is the case more broadly, witnesses continue to come forward. We'll be presenting new information in the fall. Um, but, uh, you know, as we continue to ask um, about additional evidence, I think we really need to think about what we've demonstrated already mm -hmm. uh, about the president's knowledge uh, that the election wasn't stolen uh, and his response and his intent. And, and to me, that is most graphically demonstrated when he told top Justice Department officials basically to say, just say the election was stolen or just say it was corrupt and that uh, he would take care of the rest. Right. Um, those kind of uh, uh, pieces of testimony bear directly on the president's knowledge and intent. Uh, and this gets back to your previous question about the Justice Department. Uh, I hope they're watching. I hope they're watching carefully. Uh, and I hope they understand the implications of what we're presenting. When it comes to implications, um, your colleague, Liz Cheney, was on uh, two other networks this morning, and she said that you all are discussing a potential subpoena for Jenny Thomas, who is married to Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Um, are there lines that shouldn't be crossed here when it comes to the Supreme Court? Because one of the objections to the premise of a subpoena here is that it, it sets a dangerous precedent by putting the spouse of a justice in this political forum. There are lines that shouldn't be crossed, but those lines involve sitting Supreme Court justices, not uh, presiding or, or appearing or taking action in cases in which their spouse may be implicated. Uh, and in this case, uh, for Clarence Thomas to uh, issue uh, a decision uh, in a case, a dissent in a case, um, where Congress is trying to get documents and those documents might uh, involve his own wife, that's the line that's been crossed. Uh, and I think for Congress to be looking into these issues, uh, looking into conflict of interest issues, but here uh, looking into issues, whether it involves the wife of a Supreme Court justice or anyone else, uh, if they have information or a role in an effort to overturn election, yes, uh, they're not excluded from examination. It sounds like you're saying you favor that subpoena. Well, I, if she has relevant information or investigation, uh, we hope she comes in voluntarily, uh, but if she doesn't, then we should uh, give that uh, uh, serious consideration and 
Yes, mm -hmm. I think those that we decide have important enough information should be subpoenaed. Uh, Congresswoman Cheney also said the committee expects to hear again from Tony Ornato, that uh, lead Secret Service agent, um, and that both he and another have hired private criminal defense counsel. What does that suggest to you? Well, uh, you know, I think if they're hiring criminal defense counsel, then they uh, probably have a concern about their uh, potential criminal liability. Um, we want to hear from these witnesses. Some we want to hear from again. Uh, we want to put them under oath if they weren't previously under oath uh, so that we can understand exactly what was happening on January 5th and January 6th. Uh, and we have profound concerns about what's going on at the Secret Service. We are now, for the first time, getting documents uh, that we had requested long, long ago. There's one issue about why they weren't provided earlier, but they're also showing us some new things. Uh, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and furthermore, uh, we want to obtain those text messages uh, if there's any way to retrieve them. Uh, but either way, we want to get answers as to why those were destroyed. All right. Uh, we will continue to watch what the committee does when you reconvene in the fall. Uh, thank you very much, Congressman. And for a closer look at what the hearings have revealed about the former president, we're joined now by CBS News chief political analyst John Dickerson. Um, John, it, it's good to, to talk to you. We were side by side just on Thursday night during these primetime uh, broadcasts of the hearings. 17 million Americans watched them. But this is a political process before Congress. It's not a legal one, as we just discussed. How do we start to assess the impact? Well, it's good to be with you, Margaret. I think the impact of this Thursday's hearing was different than, than all the other hearings. When Donald Trump sometimes boasted about refusing to act as president, the consequences seemed far off. What Thursday showed was the most direct connection between Donald Trump choosing not to act as president and the dire consequences of doing so. So as Americans watched January 6th, most of them were heartsick. They thought they wished something could be done. What could be done? Donald Trump watched also, and he could do something. It was his duty as president to preserve, to protect, and defend. He did nothing. His family called him and said, because of your special connection to the rioters flying your flag, you should do something. He did nothing. So for three hours, while he watched what everybody else was watching, he did not respond. And that is the most clear representation of his refusal to do the job and actually doing the job. So what was amazing about Thursday was not the specific testimony, which was amazing, but that no one can testify that he took actions mm -hmm. uh, consistent with his job. Not the witnesses who talked about what he didn't do, but that no one can bear witness to him doing the job as commander in chief. Right. And, and that was that inaction was something Congressman Kinzinger put his finger on. Um, and he was on another network this morning saying, that when it comes to the hearings for Republicans in general, this doesn't appear to be having a ton of impact. And I thought that was interesting because when you open the Wall Street Journal editorial page, the New York Post, uh, it drew a lot of attention that they both were unusually harsh in their criticism of the former president uh, in the past few days. The journal wrote, characters revealed in a crisis Mr. Pence passed his January 6th trial. Mr. Trump utterly failed his. How do we assess where the conservative movement is on this? Well, we'll, we'll have to see. Donald Trump's uh, reputation is in flux. When we think about uh, the Republican Party, it's got kind of two challenges. There are a lot of tensions in an election year, two challenges and one thing that's going well for it. If you think of Donald Trump, the challenge is, he has been judged by the leaders of his party, Mitch McConnell in the Senate, Kevin McCarthy in the House, Mike Pence, as having failed in a fundamental duty of the job. So how does a party go forward when its most popular leader has failed at a core job in a democracy? The other challenge is in the movement of people who look at what happened on January 6th and think that the rioters didn't go far enough who have an apocalyptic sense of politics and think that anything goes if you demonize the other side sufficiently. Those are two problems and challenges for the Republican Party. The upside for Republicans at the moment, which will cause them to push that beach ball under the water, is that they've got a very favorable political environment with Joe Biden's weakness, Democratic lack of enthusiasm, and the general historical trend that the party out of power does well in the midterms. All of those things will, will encourage Republicans to leave their problems to the side yeah. for the hopes of winning power back. What do you think that legacy of Trumpism is? Is it blow up the system?
Well, the legacy as it's come through these hearings, let's think about what these hearings have lifted and what it means. It kind of goes beyond Donald Trump, but it goes to the two challenges of a in a democracy. One of the things we've seen in these hearings is that people who were challenged and under pressure of the Trump administration and, and Donald Trump, mm -hmm. they did the right thing under pressure. And we've seen that for weeks. The other challenge, though, is the people who knew better and didn't act. Right. Which of those two wins out? John Dickerson, always good to chat with you. A brutal and sweltering heat wave is impacting large swaths of the country this weekend. Temperatures are expected to break records today in states across the northeast and the middle of the country as cities brace for heat indices of 100 degrees or more. CBS News senior national correspondent Mark Strassman is in Tampa Bay with this report. There's this southern expression, even Satan's sweating today. It's too hot. It's too hot right now. This is hot. This is brutal. Brutal. Better get used to brutal. Today's blowtorch forecast, lots of triple-digit highs. Heat alerts, again, for more than 80 million Americans. For many of them, that heat is considered dangerous. Places like Texas, where this heat wave feels like a siege of standing right next to one of the wildfires burning near Fort Worth or California near Yosemite. More than five dozen communities in 20 states this past week hit record highs. Take Tampa Bay, hit for most of the last week by hot, humid winds off the Gulf of Mexico. The daily high for the feels-like temperature between 102 and 107. Texas and California had highs of 115. Overheated people in Dallas hunted for air conditioning anywhere. Libraries seemed cool again. Geoscientists blamed inaction on climate change and warned hothouse summers are here to stay. These are spectacularly tough things and they're only going to get worse unless we tackle the problem with everything we've got. Europe's week of heat was historic and deadly. Thousands died, most of them elderly. Wildfires in Spain. In the UK, where central air is rare, temperatures reached 36 degrees above normal. Portugal's high, 117. On both sides of the Atlantic, people have shared triple-digit misery, and talking about the weather has meant more than making small talk. They should take it seriously because heat-related illnesses can be life-threatening. That was Mark Strassman reporting. We turn now to Miami Mayor Francis Suarez. He is a Republican and the current chairman of the U.S. Conference of Mayors. He joins us from Miami. Uh, Mr. Mayor, good to have you with us. Uh, you just heard our reporting there. You know, in this 2,000-page report the U.N. put out earlier in the year, it refers to Florida as an example of a place where the impacts of climate change are already being felt. Um, and it mentions people are likely going to have to move away if they live on the coastline. You and your city have had to come up with a strategy, and the one released would spend $4 billion, $3.8 billion, over the next few decades to build seawalls, take other measures. That's quadruple your annual operating budget. Can, can you afford what's coming? Well, first of all, Margaret, uh, it's not theoretical for us in the city of Miami. Uh, it's real. Uh, we deal with it uh, day in and day out, year after year. Um, we've be, uh, been dedicating a tremendous amount of resources, updating our building codes over decades uh, since 1992 when we had a 200 mile per hour uh, hurricane event called Hurricane Andrew. Uh, now our latest challenge, of course, uh, is the water uh, and the heat. Uh, as you've said in the prior segment. Um, and we, uh, our citizens approved right after Hurricane Irma in 2017, which created a four to six foot storm surge in our central business district, uh, a plan called Miami Forever. And the basis of the plan is to spend hundreds of millions of dollars that were voter approved, mm -hmm. it was actually a voter approved tax, and combine them with other funding sources like the state and yeah. federal government. Uh, to be able to, 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 to uh, upgrade our infrastructure to deal with uh, all the things that are being thrown our way from Mother Nature. But when you said you can't afford not to take it seriously, I wonder if you think the National Republican Party takes the problem of climate change seriously. 
Well, what we're seeing at the national level is that the only uh, action that is uh, occurring is, is action that's taken in a bipartisan basis. Uh, the Democrats, unfortunately, have failed uh, to be able to pass uh, bills uh, to address climate uh, at any sort of scale. So uh, the infrastructure Well, they don't bill, have any Republican votes. They also don't have all Democrats on board, but it would right. help if they had Republican votes. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, I think what it means is that it has to be bipartisan in terms of their outreach, in terms of their messaging, in terms of, uh, you know, which is how they passed the, you know, the $1.2 trillion infrastructure mm -hmm. bill with, with Republican votes. Uh, and we still haven't seen uh, any funding from that bill, by the way. Um, like I said, we've uh, dedicated $200 million in funding from our city residents. I, it's a great question. Um, you know, they have a, a great infrastructure, uh, Azar, which is uh, a former mayor of New Orleans, uh, uh, who was the president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, uh, who we work with. But we still have not seen a penny of that money uh, trickle down, uh, percolate down to the cities. And we need it because, as I've said, we've dedicated a couple of hundred million dollars. Yeah. We've gotten about 30 or 40 million from the state. Uh, but we need significantly more than that, as you've uh, indicated in your initial comments. So uh, there was this $2 trillion American rescue plan that passed back in the spring um, with zero Republican votes. Florida did benefit. Uh, Republican Governor DeSantis allocated over $400 million to help coastal communities in Florida. Um, so have you gotten that money in your hand? Um, and how much more do you need exactly? Yes, we have. Actually, the American Rescue Plan, ARPA, as you, as you describe it, uh, it's coming in two tranches, $950 billion last year, $950 billion this year. Um, and we have allocated it uh, effectively. Uh, and we are trying to leverage the money that we have uh, to do things like, uh, you know, uh, increasing our seawalls, uh, uh, valves, tidal valves that prevent the backflow of water into our city uh, mm -hmm. during, uh, during storm events, uh, pump stations, uh, which we have uh, built more and more and, and, and are planning to build uh, significantly more. So we yeah. are addressing the issue head on. Um, and certainly the, the funding that um, that we're going to be receiving from the state and from the federal government, hopefully eventually from the infrastructure bill, is critically needed uh, for us to be able to tackle this problem okay. and make sure that we have Miami forever. So we mentioned um, you are a registered Republican, mayor of the second largest city in Florida. When you were on this program last back in January, you told me that you had repeatedly reached out to your governor, fellow Republican, to talk to him about health precautions you wanted to take in Miami. But you had no contact, no outreach. Um, and I wonder what you think that says about Ron DeSantis's executive leadership in a time of crisis. You know, uh, we, we are we're different. Uh, we have different perspectives and different uh, personalities and, and different philosophies uh, in terms of, of our leadership style. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, I, we, I lead, the, like you said, the largest, or arguably the largest urban city in, in the state. Um, and his uh, mandate is, is significantly greater in, in terms of number, but it's also very different uh, in terms of cities and rural areas. Um, you know, so does he talk uh, you to know, you now? He, D does he talk to the mayor of the second largest city in the state? We, we, we do. We have spoken on a variety of occasions. In fact, one of the ones that we spoke about recently happened to be about resiliency. We actually the state uh, did give us about 40 million dollars that we combined with the 200 million dollars. And we did a press conference together mm -hmm. uh, in Broward County. So on, on the environment, I have to say uh, his record uh, over the last four years, including the legislature's record, uh, has been very much pro environment and something that he and I share. What about on issues of health? I mean, when it comes to COVID, Florida's response has been heavily scrutinized. Monkeypox right now, uh, Florida has the third highest case count of any state in the country. Are you in Miami getting the vaccines you need? Are you getting the testing you need? Has that part of the health rollout working with the state been smooth? You know, we're monitoring uh, uh, this outbreak, uh, as, as, as you mentioned. Uh, I am not aware of any shortages in vaccines or testing at this particular juncture. None of it has uh, been, uh, you know, come to my attention. But certainly we'll work with the state and certainly we'll work with the federal government to make sure uh, that our city is protected and that those here get the necessary testing and vaccination uh, mm -hmm. to protect themselves against the monkeypox uh, virus. All right. Mayor Suarez, thank you for your time today. And we'll be right back.
This episode is brought to you by Huggies Little Movers. Huggies knows that babies come in all shapes and sizes, and your tushies do too. That's why Huggies is the number one best-fitting diaper with its curved and stretchy fit and 12-hour protection against leaks. No matter what kind of butt you've got, you'll feel comfy while your baby's mushy little tushy wiggles and jiggles all around. Get your baby butt in the best-fitting diaper. Huggies Little Movers. We got you, baby. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Today marks five months since Russia launched a full-scale war on Ukraine. The invasion has cost tens of thousands of lives, and it has roiled the global economy. For a look at where the fight stands now, we are joined by Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, Oksana Makarova. Madam Ambassador, it's good to have you back on the program. Good morning, and thank you for having me. I want to ask you about what just happened in the past 24 to 48 hours. Um, There's an estimated 20 million metric tons of grain stuck in Ukraine, can't get out. This is contributing to food inflation and food shortages around the world. So less than 24 hours after signing this U.N. broker deal um, to allow Ukraine's grain to export, Russia sent missiles into the Odessa port city where that grain would be transiting. This is what the State Department says. Your government said it's like spit in the face of the U.N. and Turkey. But you're sticking with the deal? Why? Well, what happened in the port is so Russian, and it's very telling about what has been happening for the past eight years. For the past eight years, Ukraine always acted in good faith and tried everything possible and sometimes impossible to end the war and to return our sovereignty. Similar with this 151 days. We are defending, we are standing strong in defending our country. And at the same time, we will find any options in order to resolve the crisis. It's like this food crisis that Russia has created for other countries, not only for Ukraine. Mm. So we will do everything in order to perform and fulfill our part of the deal. Now, when Russia is violating it, they are clearly showing who they are and that they need to be stopped. So is Russia technically violating it? Because unnamed UN officials are quoted as saying it, it, they may not have because Russia never pledged to avoid attacking the parts of the Ukrainian ports that are not directly used for grain exports. Really? It seems like a pretty big oversight. Well, let's call it what it is. Uh, everything Russia is doing in Ukraine is a violation of pretty much every international law. Attacking a, a, a sovereign country is a violation. It's a war crime. So um, we have the deal with UN and with our colleagues uh, from Turkey's. We are fulfilling that deal. They agreed also with Russia and they have to first stop the war, you know, and they have to do everything without even any initiative signed. Mm -hmm. But with this, I think they're just showing their true face again. So the good response to that should be more weapons to Ukraine so that we can defend ourselves, we can get them out from our country and we can unblock our ports and unblock all Ukraine in order not only to ship the grain, but the sunflower and everything else that has been uh, stuck in Ukraine. Right. That impacts your baby formula. That impacts foodstuffs for, for everything. But, but does this attack make, it, make that food crisis worse? Will this hurt your ability to export what little is getting out? We will do everything possible, and we're exporting even now through the western border, of course, uh, the capacity through land, through through railroads, through all possible uh, uh, ways. And we will continue doing so. Our farmers are even planting and harvesting under the fire. So we will, as we defend the country, we will continue also to rebuild at the same time and plant and do everything possible to feed us and feed the world. Hopefully, and we see already good results of the new high marshes and artillery being provided to us, that will allow us to go on, to, on the counter-offensive and free our territory, which we need to do not only for grain, 
but also to save our people. So your first lady was uh, here in Washington and addressed Congress and specifically asked for air defense systems. We know the U.S. has pledged to send national advanced surface-to-air missile systems, but they haven't actually arrived in Ukraine yet. Is that what she was referring to, and what specifically are you asking for? Uh, yes, very uh, effective uh, visit of the First Lady and her message that while Russia kills, America saves, I think have been heard by everyone here. And yes, we're talking about the NASAMs and other uh, defense systems. We're also talking about more firepower, more artillery, more uh, high marses, which just last Friday we heard the announcement of more coming. These are precision guided rockets. Exactly. And we already see that with that... Uh, equipment that is very effectively used by our defenders. We are able to destroy the ammo dumps that Russia is creating on the uncontrolled territories and that we actually are moving into freeing more territories in the south and hopefully with a sufficient number of weapons, we can do the same in the east. But the situation remains very, very difficult still. It, it is. And we know now U.S. intelligence says Russia controls about 20 percent of correct. Ukraine. I, I want to make sure that I bring this up with you because it was so deeply disturbing when I heard it. Um, a State Department official, Ambassador Toria Newland, said Russia makes orphans and then it steals orphans. She said up to a thousand Ukrainian children have been stolen and given to Russian families. What exactly is happening? What can the U.S. government or the American people do about it? It has been one of the key pleas of the First Lady here on all uncontrolled territories from Mariupol to other places, Russia is forcefully de deporting not only adults and families, but specifically children. And Russians themselves already admitted that 350,000 children have been evacuated, as they say, but kidnapped, let's call it the way what it is, to Russia. They have relaxed their own legislation in order to al allow them to be adopted quickly into Russian families. This is a brutal violation, not only of international law, but of a common decency. How can you steal our children and try to try to hide them somewhere in Russia? Only 47 children we were able to return to Ukraine uh, right now. And as of April, uh, August 1st, Ukraine will be starting a platform, Children at War, which will allow people throughout uh, the globe, including Russia, to uh, add information there about all the children. It's our first priority to locate, find them, and return them. And it's very difficult because we don't have control over these territories. And do you have any hope that you can actually return these children without the United States or other countries getting involved? We need everyone who can to get involved. And I can assure you that everyone in Ukraine will not rest until all of them are located and returned. Ambassador, thank you very much for your time. We'll be back in a moment. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? <laughs> Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. We now want to turn to Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So you have been making this big push for this CHIPS bill that would direct about $50 billion towards the semiconductor industry. Those are those computer chips <clears throat> and phones and dishwashers, and weapons, and basically everything. Yeah. The bill now also has about $200 billion in additional spending, which I understand you would play a role in helping to dole out in some way. For people at home, why should U.S. taxpayers subsidize a profitable industry? Right now, we are dangerously dependent on other countries, mostly in Asia, 
for our supply of semiconductors. We don't make any leading-edge semiconductors in the United States. And those are the sophisticated chips that you need for military equipment and high-end computing. We buy almost all of them from Taiwan. So the reality is um, we need companies to expand in America, and, and other countries all around the world are providing incentives. But doesn't rolling out state subsidies of private industry create a dangerous precedent? Or are you arguing we're just in a scenario where we need to start thinking of vital industries as partially state-funded or subsidized? Yeah. What I'm saying is this is a matter of national security, and I don't think we can put a price tag on it because we are in a very vulnerable spot. So uh, if you talk to the military experts or the national defense contractors, you know, they'll tell you they need chips. There's mm -hmm. 250 chips in a Javelin launching system. And that's not as sophisticated as some of the new equipment. Uh, There's a long list of things Congress needs to get done in a very short period of time. That. Are you confident that the votes are actually there to get this passed? Yes, I am. 16 Republicans voted to yeah. move along with this, but this is still not done, and, and it's being tweaked here. So I want to ask you about some of the things that have been proposed. You have um, skeptics on both the right and the left mm -hmm. for this, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders uh, has said um, he doesn't like it. It's a blank check to profitable companies. Mm -hmm. Rick Scott of Florida, Republican, has compared it to corporate welfare. Uh, a former labor secretary from the Clinton administration called it pure extortion. Mm. That doesn't sound like this is truly bipartisan, as you called it. This sounds like this is fairly controversial. Yeah. Um, I, no, I don't think so. I mean, it's clearly bipartisan. You don't get 64 votes in the Senate uh, every day. Right? But on and this final bill, you think, despite these detractors, this will be it's a going to big pass. bipartisan vote in the House and the Senate. Yes, mm -hmm. I believe so. Now, also, I fully dispute Senator Sanders' characterization of this, it isn't a blank check. There are many strings attached. Mm -hmm. Strings attached, uh, companies can't use this money to build facilities in other countries. Companies who accept this money can't then turn around and be building facilities in China for leading-edge technology. There's a lot of strings attached around uh, you know, the quality of jobs that have to be created, working with uh, small contractors and minority-owned contractors. There are labor protections. So to say it's a blank check is just dead wrong. Are those sufficient, though? Because you have yes. Marco Rubio of Florida coming out and arguing high-tech chip production um, should be further sort of restricted here on the national security portion. He says that um, corporations that receive the funding cannot expand chip production in China, but there are some things grandfathered in that are loopholes here. I mean, are there other places you need to tighten up stricter export restrictions, for example? Yeah. We always have to be looking at our export controls. So I would say I feel very comfortable about this bill. It protects national security and protects taxpayers. As also, written. as written, as written, there are there are taxpayer protections. It'll be a competitive, transparent process. And and there's clawback provisions. Mm -hmm. If we give the money to companies and they do or not supposed to, we're going to take the money back. I mm -hmm. feel very confident around the taxpayer protections and the China guardrails for other industries as well. Absolutely. For all technology, we have to do everything we can to make sure that our leading edge technology, whether it's in chips or artificial intelligence or other areas, can't get into the hands of the Chinese. So you're open to further export restrictions? Yes. On Taiwan, because, you know, embedded in this is the assumption that Taiwan is at risk, mm -hmm. potentially of annexation by China. How confident are you uh, when you get briefed by U.S. intelligence that this is an immediate threat? I feel confident in saying it's not immediate, and mm -hmm. I feel also confident in saying that there's no crystal ball, but we need to be prepared. That's our job, to mm -hmm. protect the American people. Has inflation peaked? I think probably. Um, but look, if I had said that a year ago, mm -hmm. you know, assuming another war doesn't break out, assuming we don't have another COVID, assume, you know, there's so much out of our control. What inflation is being, inflation is a global problem. I want to ask you as well about um, climate. Uh, NOAA is under your purview. The climate agenda for the administration is completely stalled. Is the fact that you've been unable to unstick that climate agenda, but you've moved this far with chips, does that signal to you 
Hmm. that you need to make private industry a partner in this? I would say yes, but much of business is on board. Like, let's be honest with ourselves. Climate-related events are more frequent, more dangerous, and more expensive than they've ever been. So do we need to do more to get business on board? Maybe. And it's, you know, something we are always wondering, how do we get things done in this divided political environment? Mm -hmm. But make no mistake about it. The climate investments that the president proposed are good for the economy and good for business. And, And business knows that. Madam Secretary, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us today. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Tune in next Sunday for our first CBS News Battleground Tracker poll on the upcoming midterm elections. Until next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator Dr. Ashish Jha, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, and Ukrainian Ambassador to the United States, Oksana Makarova. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News app at 12 p.m. on Sundays, and it's available on demand on Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.